given the current climate in America politically the past several years, it's sort of hard to not be fascinated by lies and our ability to deceive each other and ourselves and how those deceptions so easily just become reality for others. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 69th episode of Pine Copper Line, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook, and you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page through which supporters can toss a buck or two in our tip hat, and that helps keep PCL at your inky fingertips. You can also get neato thank yous like stickers, buttons, and totes. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, check out the link in the show notes. And if it doesn't, don't even worry. Just enjoy the show. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. Print friends, I am pleased as punch to tell you that Pine Copper Lime is finally offering merch. That's right. You can rock the PCL logo in your studio, your grocery store, if that's the only place you go out to, or just around the house feeling sexy with yourself. And we did not stop there. No, no, no. You know your friend Miranda loves a dad print joke. So we have a variety of designs to wow your friends and confuse your family this holiday season. Check it out. Link in the show notes. PCL is also brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been bringing a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Their Pro Relief ink is renowned and admired by print pros across the world, and the flagship color of this line, Super Graphic Black, is going to be coming out in a 5-ounce size in the next few months here. So keep an eye out for that. It's the perfect size to give it a go and to fall in love. To find out more, and to learn where you can pick up a can of your new favorite, black ink, visit speedballart.com or check that link in the show notes. My guest this week is Camilla Taylor. Camilla is a printmaker who comes from a small town in Utah and is now an instructor and a practicing artist in Los Angeles. We'll talk about how her initial love of bugs and insects almost steered her down the path of entomology before she was lured away by printmaking, the experience of coming from a small town to the city of angels, and we do a deep dive on her fascinating new exhibition dedicated to the concept of self-deceit. It's a topic that seems relevant, perhaps now, more than ever. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get antsy with Camilla Taylor. Hi Camilla, how's it going? Great, thank you. How are you doing? I'm really good. Thank you for, for joining me, and I'm really excited to talk to you about your current exhibition and your art practice, and yeah, I've been admiring your work for a while, and I was in my new round of recording, and so I was really pleased when I reached out, and you said yes. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I think this is the first time I've done a podcast in over a decade, so I'm looking forward to it. Ah. Well, welcome back to the podcast world. So as I said, I've followed your work a bit. I've seen you on Instagram, um, you know, where, where we all find artists that we admire these days. But for people who might be listening, who aren't aware of anything that you do or, or who you are, would you mind just introducing yourself a little bit and letting people know who you are and where you are and just sort of how you would describe it is what you do. I'm here in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in Provo, Utah. My partner and I moved here to LA so I could attend graduate school at Cal State Long Beach. That was in 2008, and we've clearly stuck around since then. 
I work in a variety of media. I'm trained in printmaking. Both of my degrees are in printmaking, and I've loved printmaking since I was first introduced to it in high school by my wonderful art teacher, Jamie Reese, who's also a printmaker. But I use it in often a sculptural capacity or as part of a larger body of work. I don't focus solely on it, but it really kind of informs everything I do. I think that printmaking has its own cultural and visual language in ways that maybe are not as well established as the way painting does, but it really does like the interest in reproduction and in the multiple kind of informs all of the rest of my work. Mm -hmm. And so you said you grew up in Provo. What was that time of your life like and what role did art play for you as a kid? Well, growing up, I didn't, I loved art. I was very interested in art, but for some time, my plan was to become an entomologist and I still really love insects and I have a great love for wasps. They're my favorite animals. Oh my gosh. But then when I was 17, my high school class went on a, a trip to Los Angeles, actually, to see the Getty and to see this traveling exhibit of Van Gogh paintings. Mm. And we went to the Van Gogh paintings, and they did absolutely nothing for me. They did not change my mind at all. I know that people really love them, and that is great for them. I have nothing bad to say. It just did not change things. But on the same trip, we went to LACMA. And while at LACMA, I saw this piece by Michael C. McMillan called Central Meridian. It's this room that you can walk into, or you could then. I don't know anymore. And it's like a hoarder's garage filled with all of these little things that Michael had made that feel like an old man's garage. But then as you look closer, they're like plans for how to make a spaceship Hmm. or the car is not quite right. And I thought if this thing, this whole experience is what art can be, then this is what I want to be a part of. And that's when I decided to become an artist instead of an entomologist. And I had already, you know, it was my senior year of high school. Mm. I had already started doing internships in entomology. It's really invested, but changed plans and went into art with a focus in printmaking. And since um, I saw that sculpture at LACMA that made me want to become an artist, mm-hmm. I've met Michael C. McMillan here in L.A., and he's gifted me an etching, which hangs in our house. Oh, wonderful. And isn't that lovely? The first time I met him, I was so excited that I couldn't speak. <laughs> and I had an intern at the time, and my intern just made so much fun of me. He thought it was so hilarious. Oh, of course. He had no idea who Michael McMillan was. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. And I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure seeing a mentor as well, you, you know, being really vulnerable and kind of not knowing what to do is always an interesting experience when they're seeing someone that they admire. Yeah, yeah. That it was it always feels like it's that that great circle of art admiration that has, you know, a sort of never ending, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I went to the University of Utah and it was it was difficult. It took me like six years, I think, because I was working full time so I could pay for school while still getting some scholarships, but, you know, being maybe lower income, it's not as easy to get through college, but figured it out. Thankfully, I don't have any student loans, so Mm -hmm. I'm not in that horrible soup that so many people I know are. Mm -hmm. Somehow was able to avoid that. When you went into art school, did you know you wanted to do printmaking or did you discover it just doing your sort of general art ed classes? I actually knew that I wanted to do it when I decided to become an artist because I was doing printmaking in high school. My high school art teacher, Jamie Reese, introduced us to printmaking and we did lino cuts and dry points and mono prints or mono types, depending on if people are sticklers for the uh-huh. difference in <laughs> We did monotypes. So I was already very invested in printmaking and was ready to start with an emphasis in printmaking when I went into my undergrad. 
I've never really enjoyed painting and I still don't. I've had a few profiles written about me and somehow they always include Camilla Taylor works in sculpture, printmaking and painting. And I don't know why. I think people just <laughs> automatically assume yeah. artists make paint. Exactly. That's what artists do. Yeah, they paint. Yeah. Like Van Gogh. I'm sure yeah. I've made some watercolor sketches, but I haven't really made any painting since undergrad and when I was required to. Mm-hmm. And then you went on to get your MFA as well, also in printmaking. Was that also in Utah? Oh, no, wait. You said, sorry, you said that was in LA. So, yeah. uh, well, sort of in LA. I mean, LA area. People yeah. in LA can often be real snobby about geography. <laughs> right. <laughs> I went to. Cal State Long Beach. So in Long Beach, and it's a huge school, which was kind of fun because there were so many people, so many different artists going there um, compared to where I teach now, where there's, you know, this tiny, tiny little department. We have three seniors graduating this year, oh, whereas wow. we had hundreds graduating when I was getting my MFA. Yeah. And so what was that move like from? Utah to LA, kind of emotionally and creatively for you. We lived in Phoenix in between for a couple years for my partner. Uh, he got a job there, and then we moved here for grad school. And it it was a huge difference, just moving from a very conservative area, both Phoenix and Utah, quite conservative. Even if there are little pockets that are quite creative, it's still this overarching community that does not really value what you're doing to Los Angeles where it's so vast mm. and so many spaces that are showing art, so many little artist run spaces also. And like every corner, it feels like some, someone's got a little thing going. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, I saw a list of all the galleries that had closed that year in LA and it was over a hundred galleries, which is kind of sad, but I realized that maybe 80% of the galleries I had never even heard of. And I think I'm pretty dialed in to the LA art scene. It's just so vast that it's impossible to really keep up with. Yeah, I definitely know that feeling just kind of on the on the cusp of getting to know Bangkok, which, you know, it says the population of New York City. So it's just, and it's a very, very creative city, very artistically minded city. And so, you know, it's, you just have to accept that you're not going to ever kind of get a handle on it. You're always going to be a fish in the stream, just sort of looking around and at no point where will you feel like, yeah, I know it inside and out. I mean, at least I won't. I know, I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's someone somewhere in Bangkok and LA who truly, you know, knew every name on that list. But yeah, I um I've too I've got too many other things going on to to dedicate my life's work to it and it's it's nice that sense of of discovery still being available is a really hopeful way to be I think in an art scene in a big city. I think uh, um a lot of people I know love being in smaller towns and I think economically there are definitely a lot of benefits to that. But there's something quite nice about in LA I'm almost always going to be a small fish. Mm -hmm. just compared to what else is going to be going on here. And I don't know that I ever was a big fish in Utah, but I sure felt like it by the time (laughs) I left. (laughs) Maybe that's the hubris of of being 21. Yeah. (laughs) But it's nice to feel like there's always, you can always improve here. There's always something you haven't done. There's always someone doing something more exciting and bigger and, you know, there's just always something more. Yeah, I, I love that idea of being able to embrace the little fishness and understand that that, that means that, you know, you're, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna take this metaphor to a ridiculous conclusion, but I've just like, of, of, if as long as your, your tank isn't too small for you, your capacity to grow is infinite, you know? Um, yeah. Like a goldfish, you know? So it's, Whereas, yeah, if your if your tank is is Provo, Utah, you might um, you might reach your your capacity halfway through life or something like that. So, yeah, I love that, definitely. And then, so you have a current exhibition up right now that has some sculpture and printmaking in it, 
And you're actually, you're using the multiple a bit in the sculpture as well, which we can talk about later, which I thought was really interesting, but it's called Your Words in My Mouth. And it's an exploration of the phenomenon of internal deception, sort of the the lies that we tell ourselves that then become true for us. What particularly about this concept interests you? I think a lot of my work really is an exploration of consciousness and the internal space. And each body of work, I kind of try to explore a new aspect of that. But given the current climate in America, politically, the past several years, it's sort of hard to not be fascinated by lies Mm. and our ability to deceive each other and ourselves and how those deceptions so easily just become reality for others. I I have at the beginning of the exhibit six portraits of fabulous liars, people who were much more successful at lying, that it became an interesting and, and others had to sort of hunt them down to put a stop to these lies. But their motivations... The ones that I chose were people who were never motivated by financial gain or power. The, one of them is Frederick Bourdain, who's this French man who, as a child, was abandoned and abused. And so now, as a, an adult, he is quite short, and so he puts on makeup and a hat and pretends to be a lost child. Hmm. And well-meaning adults will believe that he is a child and take him in, take him to social services and get care for him. Until it's figured out, no, this is a man. As soon as he takes his hat off, he's clearly balding. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But he just wants to be able to get that love that you can't have as an adult. Mm-hmm. You don't get to be a kid again. You don't get to go back to this helpless phase and and get a second version of the childhood that was spoiled. Yeah. Yeah. His mo- but his motivation, I think we can all understand to at least a small degree why you would want to do that Mm -hmm. but it's also kind of horrifying and gross like he was put in group homes with actual children and put those children at risk and i think about what if you're the that well-meaning adult who helped him out and maybe (laughs) actually younger than him oh my gosh how you would feel after you put forth all of this effort for just this weird guy. <laughs> I, I bet, yeah, you, I bet you'd gone home to your person and you were like, oh, darling, I, I met this poor lost child and I really was a good citizen today. <laughs> and then, yeah. yeah. And then maybe a month later, you see a news story about this, this allegedly lost child and the horror <laughs> that you would feel. Yeah. Yeah, it's such an interesting story because it's equal parts sort of tragic and really empathetic and disturbing, but also sad. Because it is, as you said, like it's who who can't, you know, identify with that kind of longing of of if being able to, you know, just want to feel taken care of particularly yeah. in a in a large scary unpredictable world and but at the same time there is something fundamentally disturbing about the idea of a grown man posing as a as a as a child like it's just in in a way i can't almost really put words to it just feels so deeply against it's like the a order of things of, of the, yeah of the rules that we feel like we all agree to yeah Yeah, absolutely. And I think I I just, maybe it's like my own kind of personal triggers of, I find it exceptionally annoying when, when adults act helpless, (laughs) like just sort of socially, (laughs) like I just really like when, yeah, when someone is, is acting helpless, but I'm sure, I'm sure I could like dive deep into that with my therapist about, you know, my like own issues with vulnerability or something, but yeah, like, like, when, <laughs> but like when I'm out in the world and I see people being like, being like, Oh, could you open this for me? I'm like, just, just fucking try Just squeeze it harder. Like I get like really yeah, angry. Competence is so, <laughs> so infuriating. So, um, oh. yeah. So the idea that like, so there's just, so, yeah, the idea of like a, you know, 40, 50 year old French man doing that is just disturbing too. So there's his deception. And then I have several others, you know, 
there are six of them. I included myself as mm-hmm. one of the portraits because I think that this implicates all of us. All of us are liars. It may not be big, fabulous, interesting lies where we pretend to be small children, but they're small lies often that we tell ourselves every day to make reality bearable and to turn ourselves into a sort of the version, the fiction into reality. They're versions of ourselves that we would like to be, and we tell these little lies to transform ourselves into them. I think that when you tell a lie, you have to believe it to a to an extent. And when you tell it to someone else, you're shaping their sense of reality. So one thing that I was interested in with the show was the idea of shaping reality for other people and yourself, because that's what lying does. If if someone is to believe it, then you gave them this new version of reality. And sometimes it's so small and inconsequential that it doesn't matter. And sometimes it's it's huge and very consequential and often heartbreaking. It's really interesting to hear you talk about, you know, the ways in which self-deception can be self-soothing and almost sometimes necessary to get through what's going on. But then also the fact that it has the capacity for just exceptional... Um, like to cause exceptional pain as well. And, and it can be, you know, it could be saying like, for instance, you know, when I wake up in the morning and I say, there's no way Trump's going to be reelected. Like, that's just not a thing. Like that can't be a thing. That can't be a thing. And so I tell myself that I know this because I need to be able to put on my shoes and go down to the corner store and get a coffee and get to work. Like that these are, you know, I need, if I, if I dwelt in that horrible, like reality of it actually being an option, I wouldn't do anything. But then there's, you know, the self-deception of, yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of like issues of addiction. I'm thinking of, you know, issues of like sort of sociopathy, psychopathy as well. And all of that, you know, these things that people who form, a truth in their head where they like truly believe that maybe their, their, their person is really terrible or their, um, you know, someone, their work is stealing. I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of, I'm kind of losing it a little bit, but I I guess what I'm trying to say is that that idea of self-deception and it's the way it can be a benign and malignant is a really interesting observation. Yeah. Or I think I've seen it and you may have seen it in academia, people who are, very smart, but then never quite try as hard as they could. Mm. I know someone who went through law school and then never took the bar exam because as long as he doesn't take the bar exam, he never has to learn that he's someone who would fail the bar exam. Right. Right. It's the fiction that he is still this brilliant person who is better than everyone who went through with that can continue to, to live or that you're the best artist and people just don't recognize it. And all of these other artists are getting these shows right. for some other, like maybe they're having affairs with the gallerist or yeah. they're all from rich families. There's some other reason. And it's this fiction that you sort of soothe yourself with that makes, I, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I'm not prone to those thoughts too. Yeah. This, the reality of situations much more bearable. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And that the, the way we kind of conceive of the world is fair and unfair as it sort of suits us, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, when, it, when it is not recognizing me, it is clearly unfair. Yes. But when I get things, it is only because I deserve them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and another thing that I was thinking about in terms of kind of benign or maybe even sort of quote unquote useful forms of self-deception is I don't know if you've come across this in any of your research on this, but elite athletes are have gone through studies in which it's sort of proven that they are really good at self-deception because they have mm-hmm. to believe that they can win in order to win. Um, and yeah. so if you were really truly you know, in the hundred meter dash at the Olympics and you were able to let the idea creep into your head of, oh my gosh, look at all of these people. Like, 
look at look at her calf muscles. They're so much bigger than mine. She must be quicker than me. There's no way I can do this. Like, but if but you need to you need to be able to just be like, I'm the best. I'm gonna win this. Like in order to make it true. And then even when you don't win, you know, come back in four years and still believe that you're going to win to have a chance. So there's a huge that's always been really fascinating to me. This idea that people who perform at these really high levels, you'd think that they'd have this really balanced, realistic idea of what they're doing when actually it's sort of the opposite. <laughs> I think that that's also true of being an artist. Mm. Susan Stewart has this incredible quote that um, I want to look up so I don't misquote her, but I just turned off my computer to save Wi-Fi. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will probably be misquoting it that every day when an artist goes into a studio, it is an exercise in self-belief mm. that every time we go to make art, we're continuing to tell ourselves that what we do matters, that making art is important, that this is a valuable pursuit in some ways and is often a lie because you're taking away time from many other things and it's so hard to be good at. Mm -hmm. Not all of us ever get to be good at it. Yeah. We have to, have to just continue. Say, no, no, this is important. And it continues to be important. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that the kind of indulgence of it, you know, there's a bit of like, there's certainly an element of self indulgence in it. But one of the things that I always think about as well is that, you know, just the, the cost of time and energy and resources that art making has, where you might need to make, you know, goodness knows how many proofs of a piece before you get something that you're happy with. And you might need to make goodness knows how many prints until you get a print that you're happy with. And, you know, all of that paper, just like moving through all of those, the sacrifice of the, the cotton plants or the trees or the mulberry. And you need to think, you know, this is important, like this is worth it to like, and I have the right to kind of make that decision that the, the plants that sacrifice to make this paper are, it's, it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I have the authority to make that decision. <laughs> and I think, yeah, that idea of persuasion is so interesting in the context of your exhibition about deceit, right? Because, and self-deception, because like a lie is, is a persuasion. And it's so easy to just accept it also than to interrogate someone. We're also so socialized to always take people at their word that sort of our society would fall apart if we, if we started to distrust everything everybody said. Mm. If someone's late and they say they were stuck in traffic, then we don't <laughs> investigate. We let that be yeah. and move on to the next thing. Because we, I'd rather have, I'd rather think that that was the truth than think the truth was you actually just didn't prioritize this meeting because you don't really want to be here. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'd much rather think, yeah, yeah, you know, traffic in Bangkok, it's terrible. I get it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking too about, you know, that you know, when you were talking about this kind of like deception and kind of what we choose to believe, and I think that feeds back nicely into something that we, we talked about a little bit sort of off tape was the idea of deception and reality in our current political climate and in our current social tapestry of the United States and that people seem to be in a place where they can just sort of pick and choose their truths because they feel like they can't trust anything. And we were talking about particularly in the context of QAnon and how, you know, people can take these sort of horoscope-esque quote-unquote drops and read whatever kind of truth they want into it. Absolutely. I, we talked about how the internet, we all thought at least I did when I was young, and, and we saw the, the greater and greater accessibility to it that you can know anything and that the truth and information is going to be so accessible when in reality it does not change the kind of truth or versions of truth that people are willing to accept hmm. and that some people are just never going to agree. And 
in some ways you arguing with them and you presenting your facts is only going to reinforce it. That it's in many ways like a religious belief where my disagreement becomes further proof. Right. Now. And we talked about that in terms of QAnon. And I think um, it, we're not just the right, but we're all so, so uh, persuaded by it now. And it's so hard to even trust any information. Just looking at, for instance, my, my Facebook feed, I feel like about 50% of my friends are still not sure if Trump ever had COVID mm-hmm. because they have no idea who they can actually trust for information anymore. Because so much of it is so manipulated. And their reaction, I think, is so reasonable. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem. Yeah. Is that I can't say, well, oh, you're such rubes. It's so clear that this is what's going on. When at this point, at least in in the governance of our country, there's so little, little concrete things that you can cling to and say, this actually happened. This is the truth. This major event is a true thing. Yeah. There's so little of that. And because of that, things like QAnon are able to exist because they can take one little lie, say that the president says or someone else in power says, and then weave this entire tapestry from it that becomes this elaborate conspiracy that shapes the way people interact with each other. The way they look at something as mundane as children's toys are now this tool for child sex trafficking somehow or the podestas on this beautiful sculpture by louise bourgeois arch of hysteria and i've seen that pointed to multiple times as proof that because they own this sculpture and display it they must be eating children no one else would ever want to have this beautiful sculpture i mean to me it's an incredible sculpture but I suppose people who are not interested in those kinds of ideas, to them, it only indicates a sick mind that is right. totally believable that this person is sacrificing children for adrenochrome. Yeah. And and I think that in that landscape where you don't know what you can trust, I think self-deception just becomes almost like the only form of reality because you, you have no... If you believe you, there's actually no way to gather information and find external truths, then the only truth is the internal truth. And that is, any closed loop like that is is never going to end well, I don't think. Yeah, it's the most destructive thing. Because we should all have realized at this point, by reaching adulthood, that we ourselves are not that reliable. Yes. We always need to have some other source of information eyewitness testimony is very unreliable Mm -hmm. and our ability to parse information is so faulty you know we're turning back to the idea that if someone says they were stuck in traffic we just believe them Mm -hmm. but if we were really critical about it or any of these little lies we would know this is a lie and now i have to also inspect every other little thing this person potentially (laughs) says because yeah i don't live my life in distrust (laughs) <laughs> this, I mean, the, the, the body of work is not um, a didactic. It's not saying we should dis- distrust each other. It's just a reflection, I think, of the reality that we are untrustworthy. Yeah. But that untrustworthiness is just what we have to accept to continue living. It's just what the way we are, how it is. Yeah. In the process of making it, did you find yourself really more hypervigilant for your self-deceptions and maybe your white lies while you were making the work? And has that stayed with you? Hmm, maybe. Mm-hmm. It's so hard to say, especially now. The The majority of it was made during the pandemic and, and um, social distancing and stay-at-home orders here in, in Los Angeles, mm. where the opportunity to white lie have been greatly diminished. Because <laughs> right. I've, <laughs> I've had so few social interactions with other people but i have actually found myself more and more willing to be honest about things for instance this is a stupid little thing where i don't like wine but it's sort of the de facto thank you gift right Mm -hmm. and 
in the past month, two separate people have offered me wine as a thank you gift. And for, to both of them, for the first time ever, I was willing to finally out myself as someone who does not enjoy drinking wine and just say, I don't really like wine. But uh, if there's someone you know who would enjoy it, I would love it if you gifted it to them instead. Yeah. Or I would love to pass it on to someone who will enjoy it. And normally I would just take it and just, you know, quietly gift it to the next person who needs a thank you gift for cat sitting or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. And it's, um, I often think about, you know, those white lies in terms of giving myself too much power and too much credit. Like, do I really think that I am so important to this person that if I tell them, I'm not a wine person that that it'll just ruin them. Like, like I think like, Jesus, Miranda, you're self-obsessed. Like, <laughs> exactly. They don't, no one cares. No one cares. The other thing we tell ourselves is that we are so important when in reality we have very little importance outside of our own thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to focus in just a bit on the dry point monotypes that are in your exhibition, because I think that the technique is really interesting and also really effective aesthetically. So could you kind of just speak to the process and then, and how that sort of fit thematically? Yeah. So initially, actually, I wanted to make etchings. And when I was originally planning out this series, that was my plan was to make some copper etchings, but then pandemic happened and I lost access to the studio, the printmaking studio at school where I teach, where I was planning on etching. I had to pivot to what can I do in my home studio on this little tiny press I that is my own press, which is one of those um, Dick Blick baby blue plus presses with, I think, a 12-inch wide press bed. So it's quite small. And I love my little press, but I know it is, you know, it's no Takash. So, but dry point, I can absolutely do a dry point at home. And because of one of my jobs as an artist assistant, I had all of this leftover plastic film that I had saved because I thought, well, the artist is throwing this away. I'm sure I could do something with it eventually. And thankfully, I did. I figured out it's it's so easy to cut. And so I could cut it out and uh, put a sketch underneath to do a dry point print really easily and then cut out the shapes so I could create those really beautiful rich blacks mm-hmm. by just inking up a plexiglass and then putting that plastic film shaped plate over top and I think for a lot of printmakers we have a tendency to overcomplicate things that mm. maybe that should have been an aqua tint but and in the past it would have been an aqua tint But as my facilities were simplified, I thought, well, what else can I do? Oh, of course, I could just do a brayer roll to get a nice black background, and it'll work perfectly. Yeah, I ended up making about 64 of them, and so they became monoprints for the most part because additioning just seemed like almost a meaningless exercise for an exhibit at that point. If Mm. there's so many different images... I don't know that it becomes meaningful to have each of them in an addition of five. That just means I'm going to have so many prints afterwards and keeping track of them. So I gave myself uh, the ability to just work really loose with all of the little plates. And some of them I made several versions with and then was able to just choose the best. And just kept making so many of them. The Mm. portraits... I got super monotypey by inking them in a really painterly, maybe, manner, brushing the ink off or wiping the ink off really unevenly so that you see the line work of the draw of the of the dry point, but the ink is not completely wiped away. And it sort of gives it a sense that the the figure the line work is falling into or being invented out of that black space of the ink thinking of the way that as they invent these fictions about themselves that become reality they're coming into clarity or out of clarity it's it's funny to me because i think most of them were rather successful but then friends who are printmakers 
one of them came and, and told me which ones looked the most contrived in terms of wiping because he's done the same medium, of course. Uh-huh. And so he knows exactly how to achieve that effect. And he said, this one's the least contrived. This one's the most contrived. That looks well. Yeah, I feel like yeah. Leave it. Leave it to a printmaker to to want to get technical. I think that we can we can always appreciate that. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> you're such you're <laughs> such nerds. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and then so along with um, these portraits, you're also I've seen dry points of objects as well, like houses, chairs. Um, stairs, how did they speak to the theme of the exhibition? Like the portraits are, are you know, these uh, manifestations of these deceivers that have these stories, but what about the non-human representations? Mm-hmm. So the way I kind of try to structure a body of work or show is I think of it as an essay and each piece in that body of work is like a paragraph, a proof towards the thesis of the essay. So maybe the first paragraph in this essay are the portraits that lay out this very clear idea of deception. And then you go into the next room in the gallery or just the next series and you see maybe a more metaphorical idea about deception. The little houses are all of dollhouses And dollhouses are this space where you can imagine yourself. You can think of this version of a life, but it is entirely inaccessible. It is always a fiction. It is never a reality. And because of that, the the perspective on them always feels a little bit not like a real house. It always feels kind of too small, like you see it slightly from above. Mm. Either you would be on, in order to see a real house that way, you'd have to be a drone or on a high ladder. But because they're little dollhouses, you get that sense of their smallness and their containment. They're, the dollhouse idea is mimicked also in a sculpture that I have in the show where, kind of referring back to how printmaking has really influenced my sculptural work, it's a dodecahedron, which is a 12-sided shape. Mm-hmm. But each side on that shape has a three-dimensional house, small house, bursting out of it. And all of the houses are from the same pattern that I designed, but with ever so slight variations. And the pattern, I had laser cut. So I think of it sort of as influenced by the idea of printmaking and could almost be considered a print if we were to extend the idea of printmaking to digital work. But Mm -hmm. I'm not a real stickler for definitions. (laughs) I don't mind one the other. Yeah. So the repetition of, of those are, again, about... The, the inaccessibility of this fiction, but also this phenomenon that I'm curious if you've experienced or if anyone listening has experienced of we have a dream. And in that dream, you return to a house that you grew up in or that you've lived in for a long time, but something in that house has changed. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had that experience? Yeah. Like, and, and not even necessarily like a childhood home, but it'll be like, yeah. I'm in my, I'm in my, undergraduate philosophy classroom but it's actually a field you know and like so like like it's it'll just be your brain is telling you where you are but the physical space doesn't reflect how you know the actual reality of that space yeah for sure yeah in the poetics of space Gaston Bachelard talks about this phenomenon he calls it the dream house but I try to not call it the dream house because we think that means like your ideal house yeah the perfect house that you're gonna of the American dream and, and go into a great amount of debt to buy. But instead, the, the house that you actually experience in a dream and how it's both the familiar and the unfamiliar, and it's sort of this manifestation of your own subconscious, the space that your subconscious exists in. So each of these houses is the same pattern, but each is also slightly different, different window pattern or different arrangement of doors or one of them has siding one of them has more dormer windows so each time each iteration of the house changes slightly but all are essentially the same house and there's never a true house there's no platonic Mm. ideal of the self because once you tell a fiction about yourself it becomes the reality in Mm. some respects enough that there's no there's no truth underneath Mm. or there's no 
how to phrase it, there, it's not that there's no truth underneath. There's nothing else that is more true underneath. Hmm. We could say we're like layers of onions, we're, but every layer of the onion is just more onion. It doesn't change. It doesn't become a new thing. It's just ever so slightly different. And I think that's how we are. I'm also kind of fascinated by this idea that people, some people kind of think of this true self that's different from who they actually are. Hmm. That's sort of the separate set aside idealized version of themselves and sort of like the quote unquote true self. And it, that to me also feels like this kind of convenient fiction that separates you from your actual actions. If right. There's always some perfect ideal out there. Yeah, absolutely. And that you can be, yeah, like the true self is is a tiny person like steering the robot, but oh is my god, making- I made a little. I made a little uh, lino cut sculpture that's just that that I showed my class this morning. That's a little tiny man who has a house in his chest and inside the little house is another tiny little man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 whoever that tiny person is steering you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, yeah, that, yeah, that separation between yourself and your actions is something that I find really interesting. And it's something I've been thinking about just sort of a, it's kind of a lot lately, actually. And, and this idea is like, you know, are we our actions or are we something more than that, you know, um, for truly like what, what makes us up as a person. And so, yeah, when people have that separation where it's, or, you know, you hear people say, well, no one knows the real me. And it's like, it's like, but how what is the real you like isn't you how you interact with the world and aren't people isn't that an observable thing and aren't you the one who chooses what you're doing in the world and what you choose to show us how is that not a reflection on the the realness of you yeah and I'd also think about it in terms of of that you know like the great the great great question of sort of what what is truth and and particularly when people I think come up with lies about their past um, you know, about things that, that maybe don't have like an inert quality to them because the past is fiction, right? It's, it's something that certainly if it's, especially if it's something that you experienced on your own, like what does it really matter in its own strange way, what you believe about mm-hmm. it? And it's, and if you, if you want to self soothe through, through deception, you know, if you want to, if you want to tell yourself like, you know, I was, I've never done this for the record, but like, like if you were like driving down the highway and like it's late at night and you're the only person and you, a cat runs out in front of your car and you hear a bump. If you want to tell yourself, I'm sure it's okay. I'm sure it was just a pothole and I'm sure the cat is fine. And you're like going through the countryside and you're never going to come back to it. Like, how is that affecting your life? You know, obviously it's affecting someone's life, it's affecting the cat, and it's affecting if that cat has people or kittens or something. But for your lived reality, you know, wh- what, is, what is the actual truth there for it? Um, and I'm sure that's a kind of fiction that people tell themselves all the time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I include uh, Joseph Boys as one of my portraits subjects. Mm-hmm. And I think his backstory is fascinating. And I'm, I should be clear, I'm not an art historian, but as I understand it, you know, the story about how he was a fighter pilot, a Nazi fighter pilot, or as it's usually described, a pilot for the Nazis. <laughs> okay. So there's like this separation. Yeah. He was shot down over, I think, the steppes, right, of Russia. And then he was rescued by these Tartar tribespeople who wrapped him in layers of fat and felt and then put him on a sled and took him back to their village and resuscitated him and cared for him. And he was able to stay there throughout the war. Familiar with that story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's how I know it. Yeah. And it's all a lie. Oh, really? <laughs> it's a fiction. He was shot down, but he was, he was saved by, by his own people and brought back and continued to fight in the war. Huh. I th- and I don't know why he came up with it. I've never met him or read an account of him explaining it. But I think it's that same self-soothing. This is a new fiction in this reality. Some some people saved me, and I did not have to continue this. I was able to do something else. Yeah, yeah. And all of his sculptures take on a new light in rea- in in with that knowledge, don't they? 
that yeah. these are all almost like talismans to build up this fiction. Sorry, I'm just like taking that in right now. <laughs> just like I'm like, I might need a minute. Um, yeah, well, learning that story about Joseph Boyce is what re- kind of really kicked off me thinking about this series a while ago. I've been thinking about it for a while before I was able to start making it, sort of developing it as this idea that th- that story to me just makes his work so much more fascinating mm. and also understandable. But it also, there are repercussions to someone just deciding this didn't happen. I was not a Nazi. Yeah. I don't know what they are, but they exist. Yeah, it's such it's such a huge question for me, too, that, like, it just, it feels like such a deception, or the deception of the example I used of the cat earlier. Like, it feels mm-hmm. like that does have consequences. But when you look at the lived internal reality of the person doing the self-deception, it's like, what are those, you know, kind of other than you being a, sleeping a little bit easier at night for them? But it yeah. really like it's just it seems like the way the world works, it's going to throw something off of balance. Right. I think so much of being an adult really is just realizing that some things there's no redemption from. They're just to be endured. Mm. And. I don't know what the repercussions for choosing not to endure those things are, not to endure the reality of your own actions. But there's got to be something. And it could be just the likelihood that you will not intercede if you see the repetition of it. Right. And to be clear, I love Joseph Boys as an artist. I love his work. I love learning about it. But I think I love it because he's a liar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and I think too it, it it brings up so many questions for me about the way the work is consumed too, and you know how much of the appeal for people is this you know this story of this incredible rescue and him getting to to bow out of the the rest of the horrors of the war, and then yeah, if it was more sort of broadly known, I do agree with you that I feel that that kind of fascination of. It makes it so much more sort of like psychologically fascinating, but I wonder if if people would really, I don't know, be able to uh, to be able to see it that way. It's a good. It's a question that I I think about in terms of, and I'm not going to remember any of the details of this, but maybe you will. The story that came out a while ago about a gallerist who was pretending to be an artist who he said was a homeless man that he he was like he was like oh i just discovered this person's work and they're this homeless guy and they actually are this great outsider genius and in the end it turned out that he was making the work himself and then no one had any interest in the art anymore when that was revealed but i feel like it's different with joseph boyce yeah. i feel like there's something cuz he's cuz he still was making the work himself so the authorship isn't what's in question it's the truth value around it Yes, I agree. There's something that feels different about it. And I tried to choose all of those liars that I did portraits of as people who are not motivated by money or power. And I think that that could be what feels different is Mm. that this gallerist feels so clearly like he was motivated by the ability to make big sales and have have this fictitious artist that he can control their market entirely. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that that is a really important distinction that the portraits in your show are people that just seem to just want this to be true about themselves for some reason because I believe there's someone who their whole deception was impersonating New York City subway operators or bus drivers. Yes, uh he, he subway operators Darius would impersonate subway operators and I believe he's been he's been sentenced to short jail sentences for it and serve time. And then he just does it again. Yeah. For whatever reason, he's not able to become an operator. I I don't know why it could be. I think he has, um, so, uh, he's on the spectrum for autism and I don't know if that is preventing him from qualifying for this job, but he knows so much about it that they don't really ever figure out that he is doing it until like they see he's not on the payroll yeah. or something else about him. But 
that feels like we'll just let him let him drive the trains. But also, he's not trained. What if yeah, there's an emergency? Exactly. Everybody could not. It's an actual high pressure situation. Yeah, it's so true. But yeah, it's it. But clearly, it's it's just something that's in him. Like you know, it's it's he doesn't need the external glory of being the subway operator, right? Like it's just he's there yeah it's something for him that that he needs he needs it to be true about himself for a reason which is so interesting there's this other person who uh, everyone reacts nearly reacts differently to because so far all of the subjects feel like oh like so sad i can totally relate but one of them is a medical scammer where she goes online and pretends to have cancer Mm to get sympathy and she's never gotten she loses money because she has to buy all this equipment to pretend to have cancer but people react to her as though she's just the most loathsome really and yes there's something that feels a little extra gross about it but i think it's so interesting that people are like oh frederick bourdon pretending to be a child so sad so pathetic just want to give him a hug but then they learn about this other person, Carissa, and they people have literally said there's a special place in hell for her. When fundamentally they're so similar yeah. in terms of deception. And she she only does it online. So she didn't even insert herself into the physical space of people at risk. Mm-hmm. Like Frederick children. But yeah. I understand that there is something that just feels a little extra gross about it. And I don't know why. I had a hard time finding women for this for as subjects honestly that's really fascinating i wonder how much of it i don't know because i was gonna i was gonna just pop off a completely based on nothing question which was i wonder if it relates to being on the autism spectrum but then i also then remember that i recently learned that it's not that less women are on the autism spectrum it's just harder to diagnose women or it just doesn't get the same attention so it's not even necessarily that and to my knowledge Darius was on the autism spectrum and he he's a, a black man and I also found it quite hard to find people of color that with these parameters to be clear I'm sure that there are lots of con artists who are people of color and women but with the parameter of someone perpetuating a large kind of deception with other motivations than money or power yeah I just have wealth of, of white men who, who did it and very few women and people of color. Maybe it's because white men kind of have inherent power and ability. I mean, that is what I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let, so, let the viewer come to those conclusions. Right, right, right. You said it's not a didactic exhibition. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I know that it's uh, it's a bit kind of gauche to ask this of an artist when they currently have an exhibition up which is the what's next question because you're you're currently kind of celebrating a a body of work but you know we're in a very quickly changing world particularly when it comes to truth value has anything come up from showing the exhibition or people's responses or even just recent events or anything going on for you that's kind of given you an idea of where you might go next? Well, I made I made a quilt for the show, and it's printed, and I really enjoyed doing that. I've been working on sketches for making another printed quilt. I didn't grow up quilting personally, but I learned how to do it fairly recently in life, and I love the idea of making the print into something that's so malleable and soft and then pairing it with sculpture Mm. It feels like you're sort of caring for this sculpture and gives it this sense of warmth that you wouldn't otherwise have. And the interaction between the two things. I haven't really conceived of a new body of work yet. I love a due date. I love working towards a due date. And I don't have one right now besides the sort of individual pieces that I have self-imposed due dates for. I've been thinking about how we adapt to what's going on with with being able to be in a space and I don't have a good answer uh like how do we replicate the the community that we don't at least I don't get to have anymore with like I can't have a big opening reception anymore and experience that kind of community or attend one 
because it's just dangerous for us all to be in the same space with each other, breathing air. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, yeah. the handful of people who forget and go in for a hug and get too close. So how, what, what are we going to do to replicate that and still have a physical experience of art? And I've been thinking about maybe male art is a good answer, potentially. Mm, I'm not mm -hmm. quite sure how we then elevate that to the same kind of level or experience that you can have in a gallery with large works. But it's something I've been thinking about. Yeah. And maybe it's just our expectations need to shift, too. Although I can, I can tell how... I think given your your story about how the impetus for you to become an artist, not an entomologist, wasn't an immersive exhibition, that the idea of art in space might be particularly on on your mind. Because it's, yeah, it's those experiences that the actual bodily experience of being in an art space like that. that Absolutely. And you and I both love Instagram, but so much of my work is black on black and it just does not communicate as well in photography as it does in the space with you yeah so yeah just pretending that the digital is a is a adequate replacement for experiencing art in person I just can't get behind that mm -mm. I'm not about to start using bright colors that really pop out on the tiny little screens we have and also I love yeah, I just like I could do in Central Meridian, seeing how pieces have relationships with each other, like right. the little prints of individual chairs and how they have a relationship to the sculptures of tiny chairs, where the little houses have that relationship to the big houses. And, you know, the, the interplay between works in a space together when you experience them all at once and you can lead a viewer through this thread till the end. Viewing rooms are just such a, a limping, <laughs> aping <laughs> solution right now because there's just nothing, there's nothing will replace the experience of walking into a space and feeling it hit you and feeling that delight or that horror or that emotion or even, you know, turning around a corner and, and being hit with a work of art that's been kept from you from the initial approach. All of that is just, it's so, so wonderful. I have this piece in the current exhibit that's, as you first come in, you just see that it's like a life-size ceramic head, and it's at the front. So you see it, people tend to just walk past it, experience the whole show, go all the way to the back, get to the glass stairs, see the quilt, and then as they leave, they see that the head, because of its angle, you see as you leave that it's hollow and there's something inside and so there's this like last experience, this iteration of everything that people have right when they're about to go out the door. There's a tiny little figure seated on a chair inside of the head mm. that coming in, everybody misses. And they only get to have that little experience on the way out. And it's like this little moment of delight yeah. and discovery that I don't know how we can replicate unless we start making shows into video games, which could be a great solution because that's actually a platform or a medium that makes sense digitally. Right. <laughs> yeah, especially if you want to try and get the immersive experience. So, yeah. And then with um with the the blanket though that you were talking about, so you're you're printing on I'm assuming panels and then stitching the panels together and it, are you printing with mm -hmm. the dry points still for that or etchings? Um, so I've done one in the past where I printed dry points on fabric, but for this current one, I just did monotypes on fabric where I pulled weeds from my garden and then used the roots from the weeds to ink up and then paired them. So it'll be a black panel with a white, the, the block out of the weed and then flip it over and then it'll be a white panel with a black weed. So they become mirrors of each other. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, yeah, I love what you were saying about, about the softness and the malleability of it. And I've been thinking a lot lately about the connections between printmaking and textile and how I haven't mm -hmm. really explored it too much in my conversations on the podcast or just sort of in general, but it's exciting to hear. So I'd be, I'd be, I'll keep a keen eye with, on your Instagram. Yeah. yeah. 
I work with textiles a lot. I've got another piece in the show where there's a, a tablecloth underneath 17 heads that are 17 ceramic head sculptures. And the tablecloth, I think the trouble is, is that maybe it looks a little too slick because uh-huh. a lot of people just sort of think that it's a found object or something that I I purchased. Right. But I printed on it a very specific pattern of mock orange flower right cut out these stencils of mock orange flowers from drawings and then printed it in a pale gray on this white fabric because mock orange flower in the european language of flowers tradition indicates falsity Mm. so it's like this little additional layer of information in retrospect I'm not sure, that, honestly, that I need to give people a clue because sometimes, like that little figure in the head, it's nice that not everybody gets it. Yeah. And just some people get this little extra information who spend the time with it. Yeah, I do like that. And even if people see it and don't sort of fully understand it, I think that's all in the capacity of building visual language. And yeah, not everything needs to be mm-hmm. needs to be handed for sure. Well, before we sort of sign off, can you please let people know where they can find you and where they can maybe experience your exhibition digitally and follow your work and all of that good stuff? Absolutely. The exhibition is up at Trix Team Gallery, which is in downtown Los Angeles, or you can just find them online at track16gallery.com. Pretty sure that's correct. <laughs> If not, maybe you can correct me. When you I'll love, yeah, I'll um, make sure to, to put whatever it is, I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I can be found on Instagram at, at Camilla Taylor or online at, at CamillaTaylor.com. Beautiful. Well, thank you for, for joining me this evening. And it's been, it's been really wonderful to chat with you and get to know you a little bit. And if the world ever opens up again, you've got a friend in Bangkok. If you ever want to come explore printmaking here, it's pretty great. So. Oh, I would love to. Yeah. Up on that. I hope I get to. I hope so and too. And as an aside, I have long given your podcast as extra credit to any student oh. to listen to. So it's super <laughs> exciting to be finally on it. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Well, I'm I'm just, yeah, it's really been really great to get to know you more and your work. And like I said, it's an, it's an open invitation. I, I'm happy to, to take you around for, for curries and printmaking anytime the world opens up again. Oh, that sounds like heaven. I'm making curry for tonight. Ah, uh, perfect. <laughs> well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Christina Weil, who recently published a book with Yale University Press titled The Women of Atelier 17, Modernist Printmaking in Mid-Century New York. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. (laughs) 